Rabbi David Kasher serves as the Associate Rabbi at Ikar, a spiritual community in Los Angeles, which is north. <laughs> I tell my parents, you know, my parents, my dad is very directionally challenged. Not that you are. My, my dad is. And he, gets, he flies to L.A. to come visit Orange County. He frequently gets on the 405 North. And I say, well, if you think we live in Santa Barbara, you're going the right way, Dad. Anyway, we are south of L.A. Rabbi Kasher grew up bouncing back and forth between the Bay Area and Brooklyn, hippies and Hasidim, and has been trying to synthesize these two worlds ever since. After graduating from Wesleyan University, he studied for several years in Shivot in Israel before heading to rabbinical school, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, where he was ordained in 2007. As an aside, we just happened to have Rabbi Shmuley here last year. So, Chovavei Torah, you're making a name for yourselves. He returned to Northern California and became the senior Jewish educator at Berkeley Hillel. And while there, Rabbi Kasher joined the faculty at Berkeley Law as a lecturer and completed a doctoral degree in comparative law. He was part of the founding team at Keva, an educational nonprofit dedicated to expanding the place of Torah study in all sectors of the Jewish community. While there, he developed and ran the Keva Teaching Fellowship, a teacher training program for emerging Jewish educators. He has served on the faculty of the Wexner Heritage Program, Reboot, and Bina, and also taught at Pardes, Svara, Hartman, Dorot, and various Limuds. Rabbi Kasher is a teacher of nearly all forms of classical Jewish literature, but his greatest passion is, is Torah commentary. And for the last five years, he has produced weekly Parshanut blog and, and podcast, www.parshanut.com, exploring the weird and wonderful riches of the genre. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi David Kasher to Orange County, California. Uh, thanks for the warm welcome, everyone. I don't, don't really deserve it. This is, I guess, the, the tis the season, just to begin with apologies. <laughs> um, so I, I, I am very grateful to Ari for the opportunity to speak here, and I'm very uh, mortified that I um, arrived late. In fact, we all owe Ari um, a thank you uh, because he told me to get here at 2.15, and if he hadn't told me to get here at 2.15, I wouldn't be here at all. Um, we also owe Nagila Pizza a thank you because it was there that I stopped when I realized that I was, I like checked my address and so thank you Nagila Pizza. Um, I, I wish I was talking about forgiveness today and then uh, I could tell you why you have to forgive me. Um, but I am, what I'm talking about instead is something that I care a great deal about, um, which is how we talk about God, religious language. And I, I think it is a critical topic in our day and age because we live in, we live in a secular age. We live in a, an increasingly secular age where the whole question of, um, as, it's, as it's come to be classically formulated, do you believe in God, um, is in itself, I think, part of the problem in the clash between um, ancient civilization and the modern mind. That is to say, when you are asked, do you believe in God, um, you already, you, you're already being given certain kinds of presuppositions. You associate certain images or ideas with God, and for many people, it's the images and ideas, and not necessarily um, the word God, that is the problem. Right? So, I have heard many times, uh, and, and maybe you've heard also, uh, I don't believe that God is, you know, a big man in the sky with a beard, right? I had, I, when I worked at Berkeley, I had students say that to me. And I would respond, well, no, no serious theologian has, has ever believed that. And yet, somehow, that kind of imagery has become associated with the word God and, and therefore as associated and, and conditional to the question of belief. And forget about belief. I'm not here to ask you to believe in anything, but to even even relate to the concept. And that relationship to the concept of God becomes particularly important when we are opening our prayer books and saying, saying prayers, because that language is all over the place. And then it becomes particularly difficult when we are opening not just any prayer book, but the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur prayer book, because this is the time of year where we're supposed to have the most intense encounter with God, and yet, um, the images in the machsur, the, the classic images of God in the machsur, are actually some of the most challenging of all 
for the modern mind. So here we are being asked to have the best possible encounter with God, and for many people reading through the Machsor, um, it will end up being the worst encounter with God. So I want to take some of that language on and think about what we do with it. Okay. Um, and and you, if you read the title, you know that the, the image in particular that I want to look at is the image of the king, God as king. And to think about why, why that language is so prominent and, and whether it's useful to us or not. I feel like an, I can ask these questions of whether it's useful to us or not because I don't think any one word or image is mandatory or obligatory. That is to say, um, I think, let me, let, me start by saying, let me start by saying something that is at once heretical and also pious, and it is this. The whole religion is a metaphor. The whole religion is a metaphor. All of religion is a metaphor. Now, that is like close to heresy because it sounds like I'm saying this, none of it is true, but also I think it is like deeply pious because part of what I'm implying is that one cannot possibly, possibly presume to access God with a word. If the concept of God means anything, then none of our words are sufficient to describe it. Okay? So to say that the religion is a metaphor is just to say is that God is that great, that there's, or, or that inaccessible, or that infinite. We'll talk about this more, but the whole religion is a metaphor. So then the question becomes, well, you know, which, which metaphor works? Which metaphor will help us get closer to that thing, which I'm going to say at the outset, I'll reveal the punchline at the outset, we're never going to get there. We're never going to get there. And the question is, what about the word king? How, how far does it help us go? What, what, what about the word parent? How far, far does that? What about the word lover? How far does that get us towards an encounter with God? What about the word God? Is that helpful? Okay, so the idea that uh, the Torah our sacred text, speaks in the language of metaphor is not, uh, is not a, a twist or a, or, or, or a modern um, suggestion, but in fact, the most obvious thing in the world if we look at a couple of passages. I brought some sources with me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass these out. Okay, I just want to start with some places in the Torah that, that are obviously metaphors. There's no question, you look at this and no serious Jewish thinker has ever suggested that these are to be taken literally. So often when we're talking about sacred scripture, especially in our increasingly polarized debate about religion, we talk in terms of literalism or, um, <laughs> uh, or on the other hand, um, um, metaphor, um, but what, what our debate has become is literalism or falsity. Is this literally true or is it literally false? And both sides uh, are presuming that the scripture ought to be taken literally. Um, but it is clear when we look at the Torah itself that at least some of these verses can't possibly be taken literally. And I'll give you maybe the most obvious example. Um, Deuteronomy 26, 8. And the Lord freed us from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power and by signs and portents. So, does God have a hand? I mean, does the Torah mean to say that God has a hand? I see, I see no's. Anyone want to push back and say yes? No, nobody, nobody thinks that, that is to say, uh, it seems to mean something, but nobody thinks that it means this, these five fingers. Nobody thinks that God Almighty freed us from Egypt with a big, giant hand. Okay, so, so then what, what is it doing there? What, is it, what, what does it mean? Thoughts? What's a mighty hand? What's God's mighty hand? Grasping something, yeah. grasp the people. God, God is reaching somehow, reaching out to, hoping to make contact with people with God's hand. Yeah, it represents power. 
In, in other words, awesome power and by science and portents is an explanation of the metaphor that was just given. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm is the awesome, that is a metaphor for the awesome power of God. That is as straightforward and basic uh, an example I can give you. Nobody thinks that God has a big hand, and yet that language is right at the core of our liberation narrative because it is meant, this metaphor is meant to suggest that God, with God's power, somehow reached out to us. And we don't, we don't have a better way for, describe, for describing that than a hand, and so this becomes the classic image. Okay, here's just, a, just another one. I won't, I could, we could go on and on with these, but here's, a, here's a, verse from the, a classic verse from the book of Exodus. You have seen what I did to Egypt, and that I carried you on the wings of Egypt, eagles and brought you to me. What, what eagles? Where were the eagles? What is God talking about? Even, even by the Torah's own narrative, this doesn't make sense. Where were, the, where were the big flying eagles that took us out of Egypt? It sounds so silly, even as I say it, because n- probably none of you have read this line and thought, wait a minute, where, what, what about the eagles? Where are the eagles? You never think that because it is so obviously speaking in the language of metaphor, in the language of poetry. So what does it mean? Again, what, what does it mean that God carried us on the wings of eagles? Thoughts? Yeah. Um, in biology, the, uh, the male eagle cares for the eaglets and carries them on its back. Okay, good. So um, the eagle, the, the male eagle cares for the eaglets and carries them on, on his back, we, we heard. So the eagle transport is not just that God got us out of there, but did so with care and, and took, took us in our infancy uh, across the desert with some kind of compassion, right? With some strength, the eagle represents some, some mighty, bold creature, but also perhaps um, with the compassion of an escort. Yeah? No, Other a, thoughts? It's, it's a visual, artistic metaphor. So it doesn't have meaning as if this huge eagle swooped down, but you visualize this magnificent, the feathers and everything. So it's really more of an artistic visualization. Okay, great. Just to repeat that, it's a visual, artistic representation that's not actually, the suggestion is, not actually meant to stand in for anything in particular, but just to evoke the grand image of the eagle, just to associate our departure from Egypt with that sort of mighty flight. So it doesn't have to be that God did an eagle-like thing at all. It's just we, we call up that kind of imagery in order to give a texture and beauty to this, this narration of the liberation. Okay, So the, we could go on and on, but these are just a couple of examples of verses that, that clearly, without question, are speaking in the language of metaphor and poetry. Okay? And now the question becomes... Uh, well, okay, but are the, when do we know the difference between the Torah speaking in metaphor and the Torah speaking literally? Like, when, when do we know um, that, that we are encountering something that is being said uh, to, to be taken as it is? And, and when, when, when are we in the realm of, of metaphor? I see a hand in the back, yeah. Well, when the Ammonites were brought to Israel, this verse got them on the plane. When the Yemenites were brought to Israel, this verse got them on the player. In, in other words, this ver- the poetry and majesty of this language continues to be a powerful a motivator for a weary people seeking freedom. Right? There's something about the, the language is not just meant to allude to something about God, but to create a sense of inspiration. There are many reasons, in other words, why we speak in the language of poetry. Okay, but that's very nice. Like, we've, we've now made the case for poetry, for metaphor. It's beautiful. It helps. It, it works. We like it. It inspires. But you still might say that we've got a big problem. We've got a big problem because this is Judaism, after all. This is Judaism. So what in Judaism is, is going to be problematic for us when we're in the realm of metaphor? Well, the, the second commandment. I am the Lord your God is the first commandment. And then the very second commandment is don't make any form or picture. Don't make any picture of me. Okay? 
So let, let's, uh, let's uh, take a version of that prohibition in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Be very careful, since you saw no shape when the Lord your God spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire. You saw no shape, no image of God. Be very careful not to act wickedly and make for yourself a sculptured image in any likeness whatsoever. The form of a man or a woman, the form of any beast on earth, the form of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the form of anything that creeps on the ground, the form of any fish that is in the waters below the earth. Okay? No representations of God. No images of God. This is, that's, this is our, our primary prohibition. This is the, the, after God announces God's being, this is the very first thing that we hear. No pictures, no images. So, well, how does that work? What, how can the Torah speak in the language of eagles when the Torah also tells us clearly that the form of any winged bird that flies in the sky is a problem? How can the Torah speak in the language of hands when we're not supposed to use the form of a man or a woman to describe God? But it already does. This is already literal. Uh, God spoke to you out, out of the fire. That, good. That's nice. So if There's already a, a, a language of visuals, you know, the mythopoetic. Good. This, okay, this, is a great an- this is a great answer. We never quite get away from seeing, do we? Even when we were, this, this description tells us there we were at Mount Sinai, and we didn't see a form or a shape, but we saw some images. There was fire there. We heard a voice. Isn't a voice anthropomorphic after all? Isn't a voice human-like? So what exactly is prohibited? Now, we could be very exact and say, well, they're just talking about statues, we're just talking about idols. You can't make an idol and worship it. Okay, so anything else, cer- certainly by the time we get to just words, to just descriptions, anything else um, would, be, would be permissible. I'm seeing some hands here. I saw one there. Yeah. Well, it, it says that you can't create, you can't use your power of creation in making either painting, a sculpture, uh, any kind of image. But there's, there's no prohibition about thinking there's, there's almost nothing in the Torah that's a thought crime. The Torah, in almost no case, has prohibitions against ideas. Okay. Prohibitions are against doing. Okay, great. So this is this is a this is a great response. This is a possible response. You can't make an image. But you could certainly think of an image of God. That's that's a possible way of reading the verses. But I just I, I want I want to say that that it is at least reasonable to suspect that the great prohibition against creating any form or image is meant to suggest that we should back away from the descriptions of any any physical description of God at all. So maybe not. Maybe maybe there are certain realms in which it is okay to think about imagery and physicality in God, just as long as you don't get to the point of drawing it out or sculpting it out. But it certainly seems like the, the force, the be very careful not to do this, has, we have from, that has, has a strong um, message that there is, there is something wholly abstract about God and that we are supposed to refrain from getting too visual, too particular. Um, hand over here, yeah. The, the people having just been rescued from Egypt had images of Pharaoh as God. Was this possibly to avoid um, any leader, especially uh, Moses, being portrayed really well by an artist and then having that become the locking point of visual history for the people? Okay, so th- this, is, this is important context. We've just left uh, the dominion of Pharaoh when we get these Ten Commandments, and perhaps... The problem is that was an idolatrous culture. And not only, so there was iconography everywhere. We're worried about the vestiges of that religious mentality. Uh, But not only that, we have this kind of grand king-like figure. This will become very important for our discussion. This king figure, the pharaoh, who is by all accounts revered as as a god, as a sort of a god. And maybe that is the worry at the heart of it all. Not just that we would have adopted some of that other idolatrous um, spirituality, but that in fact, we are in danger of turning people into gods 
And so the thrust of this commandment is to guard us against deifying someone like Pharaoh or maybe someone like Moses, okay? In which case, perhaps God having a mighty hand here or carrying us on the wings of eagles there is not such a problem because it doesn't get to the, the, the core prohibition, which is deifying a person or the sun or uh, a, 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 a sheep god. But I've given you the, the obvious examples, the hand and the eagle, but if you look at the last source on this page, Deuteronomy 14.1, you are children to the Lord your God. So if you are children to the Lord your God, then what is God? God is a parent. God's a parent. And again, now we're in, now we're in human language. So um, what does that mean? Did God give birth to us? Right? Are we genetically related to God? Right? Is this to be taken literally? Or is this also metaphor? And if this is also metaphor, right, there are religious traditions that would take um, God the Father more literally, but, it, but in our tradition, this, like the mighty hand of God, is taken to be a metaphor. But now we've got human metaphors as well. Okay, So if the danger is deifying humanity, we have the same problem with some of the, the poetic language of the, of the Torah. Okay, So... This is all by way of saying, and I'll take these last comments before I move on, but this is all by way of saying that the Torah clearly employs metaphor to speak about God, and yet also seems to suggest, and certainly we have inherited a religious culture that tells us that there's some real problem with getting too literal and physical in our descriptions of God. Okay, uh, hand in the back, yeah. Okay, great. Question is, what if we can't help ourselves? What if this is the very, this is just the language of our, of our consciousness, of our collective consciousness, this is just the way that human beings speak? Hold on to that thought, because that's exactly where we're headed. Um, one more comment before we go. Is the core problem the deification of people, or is it the reduction of God to a single or just several metaphors? Good. I think that... That's the, the, the question is better than any answer. The question is, is the problem the deification of human beings or is the problem the, the reduction of God into a human being? And I think they're two sides of the same kind of dangerous coin, right? So a worry that we will deify someone like the Pharaoh, that seems to be in there. But surely, and perhaps um, more dominantly as the years go on, the problem is don't turn Almighty God into some rock or some statue or some tree or some person, God forbid, God is, is bigger than that. Okay, so what do we do? How do we, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that the Torah very clearly speaks in the language of metaphor? Uh, I want to give two answers, two explanations for this phenomenon. And uh, this is all intro. We are heading towards the great metaphors of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But so far we've seen hands, we've seen eagles, we've seen parents... Uh, and um, the, the, the Torah is trading in these metaphors, so uh, we are not the first people to be asking questions about it, and I want to give two great medieval rabbis a chance to give their answers. So maybe, the, maybe the true greatest of the medieval rabbis, uh, Maimonides, oh, who I didn't list there, but this is Maimonides who wrote the Mishnah Torah, and then we'll look at, at Rashi, the great commentator um, on the Torah. Um, let's take a look at Maimonides first. And what was your name in the back who su suggested that this was Marilyn Monroe? Mar Monroe. Uh, what's your name? Sheila. Sheila says, "What if we can't help it?" And that is uh, Marilyn Monroe. Just a metaphor for just a metaphor for Sheila, for Sheila's beauty, the Marilyn Monroe like. Um, okay, Maimonides. Maimonides says the following, um, and he's tracing the same. He's tracing the same line that we've been um, trying to draw here, looking at the instances of real physical imagery in the Torah. So the Maimonides says, what does the Torah mean when it says things like, under God's feet, written with the finger of God, the hand of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God? My goodness, you're getting a whole, a whole figure here. Right? I, it, isn't, isn't, 
we heard maybe that the, we're allowed to think anything we want, but gosh, like, isn't this getting pretty close to a, to a prohibition against the, 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 the creation of a form of God? Okay, so what do we do with that? Maimonides says these, these phrases are in line with the level of understanding of people who can only understand physical existence. And this is a classic phrase. And Dibra Torah Kilshon Bnei Adam, the Torah speaks in the language of people. All such phrases are figurative. Likewise, it says, as I sharpen my sword. Does God have a sword? And does God kill people with it? Rather, this is a metaphor, and everything is a metaphor. Right? This is what I started by saying. So now you see I have my, I have my, uh, my, 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 my pedigrees here that, that allow me to speak such heresy. Ella mashal v'hakol mashal. Everything is a metaphor. Okay, so th- this, this, this phrase, Dibra Torah Kishon B'nai Adam, the Torah speaks in the language of people. What does Maimonides mean by that? That seems to be his answer. Yes, I know all of these things sound like they're getting uh, a little too concrete, but that's just the way the Torah speaks. The Torah speaks like people speak. What does Maimonides mean by that? Yeah. The Torah may, uh, the Maimonides uh, tell us that the Torah is for the people. It is not for the elite. It is not for those that understand metaphors, and uh, this is a metaphor, and the other was not metaphor. Okay, great. The, tor- the, the answer here uh, being offered, the Torah is for the people. It's not for the elite. It's for all the people. So Maimonides, this is, this is a very good answer, because Maimonides himself would describe God as um, the, the existence which precedes all existence. Right? This is very Aristotelian language for the primary existence upon which all being is founded. Well, says What's your name? Sarah. Says Sarah, well, that's very nice if you're a philosopher, but that's not going to work for most people. Most people can't handle the idea that they should be worshiping this thing you can't even describe, this phenomenon, this abstract concept notion. That's just not, it's not accessible enough. And the reason for metaphors is most people, unless you're a a real high-level thinker, most people just need concrete. Okay, this is just, now, this isn't exactly Sheila's answer, um, but it's, it's in the realm because Maimonides is saying this is just, we have to think this way. This is just the way we are. We're people and we have to think in concrete terms. Yeah, you want to add? Also marketing and merchandising. If, you're, if you have a product, you have to make it uh, attractive to the person you're trying to sell it to. Uh, not to debase God to that level, but when you're trying to, to show people um, about or teach people about God, you need to do it in terms that attract them to the idea, the realm. You use metaphors that people, you know, use with the sale of cars or beauty products, or you have to make it something that people can relate to and desire. And they can't desire or relate to something that has no basis in their reality. Okay, good. So. You got you got if you're, you're trying to if you're trying to sell God here, you got to sell God in terms that people can understand, in the in terms that people can relate to. So y- you know, it just won't work to say existence which precedes all existence. That's not that's not grabby enough. Like get, you don't have your marketing degree. God, you got to talk about you know the mighty hand and the eagles that fly. You got to make it exciting. You 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 have to relate to people and you have to speak in their language. All of which is to say that this answer is that the Torah speaks in the language of metaphor as a concession. This isn't true. It isn't the way we should speak of God. But what are you going to do? People just need language they they can hang their hat on. People need language they understand and can relate to. And, um, you know, we're talking about the elites and everybody else, but really we can also think about this in the language of children. Right? Like children, this, if I told you that children need concrete language and can't relate to some abstract notion of God as a primary existence, that would make perfect sense to you. So in a way, Maimonides is saying, well, lots of people are simple. They're undeveloped. They're like little kids. And don't be surprised by that. Maimonides is a great elitist and, um, and is, doesn't put himself in this category, but is saying the reason for metaphor is, you know, we're simple people. We need to access God in, in basic terms. Okay? That's one answer. Uh, a couple of thoughts before I move on. Yeah. What about the image? Uh, what about the thought that man, man is made in God's image? Is that also a metaphor? 
Yeah, well... Um, the image of God, we're not supposed to think of an image for God, yet we are made in his image. Right, okay, so good. So that's almost like a metaphor in reverse, right? That is to say, so the question is, what about uh, the human being being made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God? So w- w- we have a form. So if you read that backwards, it seems like, well, then God must look like a person. And... The, uh, I'm not going to, I'm basically going to just admit that that's a terrific question and not address it right now because that's a whole, that's a whole like parallel theological discussion um, which usually goes in the other direction which is to say uh, there must be something about us that is not physical. There must be something else that we're talking about but it could be incorporated very, very as you've done, very nicely into our discussion and, and to say that, well, God clearly has some kind of image and it seems to be human-like so that only complicates or builds on our problem. Okay, we've have, we have one answer here, which is that the, there's, the Torah has conceded that human beings are not sophisticated enough to really get God, and they, they now I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this is the, this, Maimonides' answer is the like, it's for your sake, and it does lower the image of God, but what are you going to do, okay? Rashi has a different answer. Rashi, if, if, if um, Maimonides' answer is that the Torah speaks in the language of people, Rashi's answer is a little bit more mysterious, um, but, but I think also a little more complementary to, uh, to the process. Rashi's answer is that the Torah speaks in, in the language of metaphor in order to break open the ear. Okay, uh, that's, I, I, I know that's opaque, so let's read through and see what Rashi might mean by in order to break open the ear. Rashi says, In order to break open the ear with something it can hear, the Torah gives people an image they can recognize. Like in Hosea chapter 11, it says, God will roar like a lion. Who but God gave strength to the lion in the first place? Yet the Torah compares God to a lion? Right? Talk, about, talk about imagery. God is a lion. God roars like a lion. Rather, we compare and liken God to his creatures in order to break open the ear with something it can hear. And similarly, again, in Ezekiel chapter 43, God's voice is like the sound of many waters. Who but God gave water sound in the first place? In other words, how can God be like the water? God made the water. God is above and higher than the waters, and now God is just water? Yet you identify God by likening him to his creation in order to break open the ear. What's Rashi mean in order to break open the ear? What? What's that? Okay, one possibility is that it's, this is just the same answer. It's like giving us language we can relate to. Is there, is there any other way of reading this, like break open the ear? Yeah. Language is a limited tool, but it's what we have. Language is a limited tool, but it's what we have. And so? It's what we have to work with. Okay, okay. Uh, so, um, concept of hearing God, um, you know, we, we may we may say we are we, we we speak to God, we hear God. What are we really doing? I don't know. I think processing something in our head, but we're working towards something uh-huh. that is not concrete. Uh-huh. That is, what's the word? Evanescent. Um, and that would be breaking open the ear. Good. What's your name? Arnold. Ar- Arnold. What, uh, what Arnold says is, 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 is the way I, I also read Rashi. That is, there's something about this language that, yes, it is accessible. It, it, like, like Maimonides says, it, it gives us language we can, we can hold on to. But it's meant to get in there and then begin, like break something open. We hear God roars like a lion, and we think about that. Well, God's not a lion. That doesn't make sense. Well, what, are, what's, what, are, what is this verse trying to say? And then we think about it, and we process it, and we come to understand an aspect of God. We get through this, um, this marketing language, this grabby language. We get to a place where we're thinking about God, and we have to push ourselves beyond the language. So what Rashi is describing, rather than a concession, might be... Um, the, the unique value of the metaphor. 
The metaphor might actually not degrade our conception of God, but help us to elevate our conception of God. We begin thinking about the language, and that language itself begins breaking things apart and working, jumbling around in our brains and getting us to start thinking deeper about what God is. Okay? So I, like Arnold, read um, Rashi to be speaking um, not um, down to people, but but speaking to the possibilities of human Im imagination and conception, that, the, the, that poetry is, is, made, is meant to push us further than the language itself, rather than to pander to the only understanding uh, that we are capable of. Okay? So two approaches here. Thoughts? Yeah, in the back. Um, if God has no form, does God have a voice? I mean... That's a good question, and, and, and we, were, we were circling around that before. Does God have a voice? I, there is something about the voice and the voice emerging out of the fire that is also very concrete. It is perhaps less offensive to the biblical mind than a, than a visual image, but I think you're right that, that that presents a problem as well. Um, okay, we have, have seen metaphors. They, they are clearly a part of our, 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 our biblical discourse, and we've seen attempts to deal with the why of metaphors. Now let's take a look at the metaphors that we encounter in the High Holidays, and the best passage uh, for seeing uh, all of them at once is this great and sort of dizzying um, piyut um, uh, poem in our, in our liturgy uh, for Yom Kippur, Ki Anu Amecha, we are your people. Okay? So our God and the God of our ancestors, pardon us, forgive us, atone us, for we are your people and you are our God. Okay? No metaphor there. That's just what it is. We are the people, you're God. We are the children and you are our father. Oh, Okay, we, we saw that one alluded to in the Torah. We are your servants and you are our master. Hmm, well that's different than a parent and children. Um, we are your congregation and you are our portion. I'm not even totally sure what that means. We are your inheritance and you are our destiny. We are your flock and you are our shepherd. We are your vineyard and you are our gardener. You, we are your work and you are our creator. We are your lovely one and you are our beloved. We are your treasure and you are our God. We are your people and you are our king. Okay? Lots of metaphors floating around there. Lots of possibilities. Now, let me start by asking, which one do you like the most? Which would you pick? I like the last one you didn't read. We are the ones you speak to. Oh, you're right. Yes. We are the ones you speak to and you are the one we speak to. Because yeah, you can speak to someone in so many different ways and they can speak to you in so many ways. It can cover everything. Good. And in, in a way, this, this is an answer to the last comment about voice. The voice itself is a metaphor for our ability to perceive the message of God, right? And speaking, we don't really speak back and forth to God, or at least I, I don't hear God speaking to me that much, but there's some way in which that too is a metaphor. We see ourselves in dialogue with God. Others, others that people like? Yeah. I like the, uh, the, uh, the shepherd. Shepherd. <clears throat> and uh, that seemed to be an overlooked, uh, an overlooked uh, example because uh, the Hebrews were semi-nomadic shepherds. <clears throat> they remembered right. that. Right. And uh, in uh, chapter 19 of Exodus, uh, when, uh, when God uh, uh, starts this process, it begins with a deafening sound on the shofar. Mm -hmm. This is the shepherd calling his great, sheep. Great, 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 wonderful, wonderful suggestion. Tell me your name again. David. David, oh, I like that name. Um, David says, uh, this is, the shepherd metaphor is good because boy, if there was ever a, a language that these people would understand, it's the language of shepherding. That was their profession. They understood. The shofar is like the shepherd calling the sheep. The, the, to think of the shepherd and the sheep um, is to think of your own desire to carefully bring this flock where it's supposed to be. To like look after this this wandering and sometimes dim-witted <laughs> uh, flock of, of of animals, and you sort of you realize how what it what it takes to try and wrangle them all together. This is this is really accessible metaphor. Okay, I could keep going, but what is the the what's the metaphor? So we we got we got a lot here, but what's the one that really gets taken up in the high holidays? There are so many options here, and yet there really is one that stands out above all, and I can't 
pull any tricks on you because of the title of my talk, right? <laughs> it's the metaphor of the king, the metaphor of the king. And in particular on Rosh Hashanah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It is the metaphor, all the metaphors that are possible. This is the one that we've chosen, that our tradition has chosen. And you see it, let's just take a very quick tour. Um, the Mishnah in, in Rosh Hashanah, the rabbinic code um, compiled in the third century, um, starts us off by saying that the blessings for the day begin with the standard three. There are three standard blessings, patriarchs, might of God, and the holiness of God's name. And then we include verses of kingship with them. Huge part of the service, the first addition they make is verses of kingship. And indeed, when we get to the Rosh Hashanah prayers, the very first, first words when the, when, the, when the cantor, the chazan comes on, is Hamelech, the king. Oh, king. And it's in, in most of your uh, prayer books, you'll see it in big, bolded letters. The king who sits on a throne, exalted and elevated. Okay. Avinu uh, Malkenu, our father, our king. We have no king except for you. Another classic of the high holidays. Um, so let's think about it for a sec. We have this metaphor, the king. We asked about hands. We asked about eagles. What, what's, what do we get out of this metaphor? The king who sits on a throne, exalted and elevated. Why, why start there? What, what's that do for us? Is it, is it helpful in any way? Well, yes, Sarah. Uh, the, the idea of the king at that uh, time, it was an all-powerful uh, human, human being, and uh, uh, they had the, the pharaohs, the, the others, and Abinu um, and we're going on. Okay, so let's, let's hold a second before we get to Abinu Malkinu. So just, oh, king, just, just referencing God as a king, Sarah tells us, that the king was all-powerful. That the king at that time was an absolute, an absolute monarch. Not a president that's checked by two other bodies of government, but an absolute all-powerful monarch. Yeah, well, usually, we hope. Um, an an all-powerful uh, monarch. And so, again, this was something that people knew about and saw. It was in their world. And the metaphor of the king is meant to be a testament to God's omnipotence. That's the point. God is all-powerful. So what's the best way that we can say, should we say omnipotent? Well, again, that's philosophical language. What does it even mean? But, it, but if we say king, oh, well, I know what a king is. And God is a king. God is all-powerful. Okay. Anything else that we get from this, oh, king who sits on a throne, exalted and elevated? Yeah. Part of it is a person entering in the presence of the king. You already are humbled and feeling small. And I think that's what they're trying to get into the atmosphere of. Uh -huh. Good. So God is all powerful, and you, you, you are small. You are humble. You are, you are diminished before the king. You you humbly beseech the king. So the metaphor is meant to suggest the majesty of God, but also to create your your attitude, to form your approach, your humble approach as you begin these prayers, okay? So, okay, so these are some of the basics. What about um, Alvinu Malkenu? We have no king except for you. Our father, our king, we have no king except for you. What's that add? Okay, the king is powerful, lofty, you're small compared to the king, but now we're getting some, some more, some more uh, nuances to our vision of the king, yeah. I think there's something here that, that is missing, and that is uh, the king is missing in Judaism to the Israelite people. They are the people in the diaspora. Everybody else has a nation. And with the nation comes the king. But the Israelites no longer had a nation. They no longer had a king. And they had a longing for something to replace what was missing. Okay. And so they turned to God to be everything that is missing in their life, the future, what is to come. Mm -hmm. Great, okay. So the, the, the emphasis here in this last comment um, is, that, is on the, the no king except for you. The Israelites are now forming themselves as a people, right, in the biblical narrative, but they are a people without, 
without a structure, without a leader, a people wandering through the desert, a people who have rejected human forms of power. And so they need some, someone to turn to. They need their own king, right? And the language here is, we don't have any other king. We, all we've got is you. This is, this is the king we need, right? This is, we're missing leadership. We're missing um, unity. We're missing every, everything that... It, a king isn't just uh, there because uh, the king has managed to wrest power from everyone else, but hopefully, if it's a good king, the king is providing some order and structure to that society. The, the newly freed Israelites don't have that, and so God stands in as their king. Okay? Um, yeah. It's also a political statement. In what way? A political statement? Yes. That whatever leadership comes up, that is not your leadership. Your leadership is God. Okay, great. God is a king, and what that means is that no, we will never again have a human king. Human, although we do in the Bible, so that gets complicated, but we reject human authority, and if God is the king, then that keeps any person from becoming a deity, from lording themselves over us, okay? So these are some of the functions of the king metaphor. I want to just add one more bit of language to it, which is the opening to another one of the, the poems, the Piyutim in Rosh Hashanah, um, the poem Melech Elyon, which means the exalted king. That, the, the poem, it's like Melech Elyon, Melech Elyon is the rephrase, he's so exalted, what an exalted king. Um, but it begins with this very interesting language, Uvechen namlichecha Melech Elyon. And therefore, we coronate you as the exalted king. Now, what's extra here? What's been added? Power of the people. Power of the people. We coronate God. What is distinct about this dominion is that we choose it. We accept this God as our king. So we, this, this king will have power over us, but it's a power that we have submitted to, presumably because we accept the, the majesty and the authority of this king, not because we've been subjugated. Okay? Yeah. All of the language that we've encountered so far is presupposing a relationship. We're a word relationship with God. God is a relationship with us as well. So not only do we have the image in which uh, God has created us, and we owe our existence like the water, like the beasts, like everything else, and in all of these status relationships, we owe our existence to his creation. But at the same time, he owes his existence to us, which is to say that without us, he has nothing to do. He has no dominion. He has no place to go. A, a, so, a, a king without, without a people without is, is no king at all. Exactly. All of these metaphors, very, very, very nicely put, all of the metaphors we've seen, right? we considered a bunch, uh, but the king metaphor included are relational metaphors. So every metaphor that we choose for God ends up bringing us into relationship with God. And it's not enough just to say God is a king. If God is a king and there are no people, then God's no real king. It is, it is a way of putting ourselves into relationship with God. And as the last formulation suggests, it's a relationship that we, we control, we choose, we take upon ourselves. Yes, God is all-powerful, and yes, God has dominion over us, but in a sense, because we allow God to have dominion over us, because we've chosen this metaphor, because we want to associate our God with the majesty of a king, with the goodness of a king, with the, with the, um, with the power of a king. And in doing so, if we, can, if, we can, if we can think of God as a good king, then we distance ourselves from all those other bad powers or kings out there. Okay, so that's what's good about the king metaphor. That's what's useful about the king metaphor. But <laughs> I've also come here today to problematize the king metaphor. What's bad about the king metaphor? And I can think of a number of things, but... I'd love, to, I'd love to hear from you. What, what about the king metaphor might be problematic for the modern mind? Kings can be dethroned, kings can be beaten, kings can be uh, killed. Okay, first of all, a king is still a human being. That's the core problem. It, yes, it's a metaphor, but it's a, this is a human metaphor. The, the king is this... You know, we've, we, we know that there are bad kings out there, so if we're calling God a king, then God has that kind of vulnerability to be corrupted, dethroned, to be, to be human in some way. Yeah, what else? So 
historic king was absolute. Yeah. So he could say, off with your head, even though he didn't do anything wrong. But there's a danger there. Good, so kings are, are not just revered, but in fact feared, right? Part of what the king metaphor suggests is that we should, that our relationship with God should be governed by a certain amount of terror. Not just, not just, and we hope that this is, this is the good side, we hope that there's, there's reverence, there's admiration, there's the humility of standing before a king, but it also opens the door for us to be petrified, that we'll be, we'll be executed, that we'll be, that we'll be exiled, that we'll be banished, that we'll be jailed by this all power. The king also represents the force of punishment. And that... That, that, that's a relationship, but it's a relationship that is scary, a relationship that is, that is possibly unpleasant. Yeah. We don't have a king. Say, say more. I live in the United States. We don't have a king. Ah, great. Okay. This, this I think, in some ways, is the, the biggest problem. What's your name? Norman. Norman. Norman has really given us, I think, the real dilemma. And there are many dilemmas. There is there's the, the fear that is associated with a king. There's the, the humanity of the king. There's also the, the masculine nature of a king, right? We live in an age where the very notion of God as a, as a male has, bec has become strange and uh, not just strange, but oppressive in certain ways. So there, there are all kinds of problems with the metaphor of king, but maybe the greatest one of all is a king is not so all-powerful anymore, right? Since the, at least in, in Western societies, since... The, the great revolutions in the age of the Enlightenment, kings are, have, are no longer these great, majestic, all-powerful beings. Right? Just, just look at, at, the, at the monarchy in England. It's nice. It's sweet. We watch their weddings. Right? But they don't have any real power. In other words, the metaphor, it isn't bad just because we don't like it, or it's too human, or it's too masculine, or it's too terrifying. All those things are true. But on some basic level, it's also just not going to work anymore. If the shepherd metaphor worked for a people who, 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 who tended sheep, the king metaphor also worked for a people who had been freed from bad kings and were looking for good kings and saw mighty kings in the world. But we don't have that. The great problem with the king metaphor is that it doesn't actually help us construct an image of God. If I start thinking about Prince Charles, when I think about like praying to God on Rosh Hashanah, well, I'm not going to be very inspired. I mean, all respect to Prince Charles, I have nothing against him, but you know, he's just not that big a deal in the world, right? So the metaphor of a king has become um, exactly uh, the opposite of what it was meant to be, which is impotent. The me metaphor of a king just doesn't hold the power. Okay, um, one comment, and then we'll move move to our conclusion. Yeah. It seems also that that part of the work of, of being a spiritual person is wrestling with what it is it means to you at any given time. And, I mean, this is being a king or being an arm is too settled. It's already decided for you. Where, whereas I think your work is to figure out what it is that you yearn for and Okay, this is a beautiful comment. So what you're suggesting is that the metaphor of a king and any metaphor um, presents us with the danger of getting locked into one mode of thinking about God. And the more powerful, the more widely used a metaphor becomes, the more it fixes in place a very particular notion of God. We are your people and you are God. We are your vineyard and you are our gardener. We are your sheep and you are our that, that series is meant to say there are lots of ways that we can think about God. There are lots of possibilities. And, and so choosing one and fixating in on one is a, kind of, is a real reduction of God. And there are problems with the king metaphor, but I think part of what you're suggesting is anytime one metaphor for God becomes too dominant, then we really are in the danger of turning our conception of God into this thing. And that really does rub up against the prohibition of making a, a, a form, a representation of this thing which cannot fully be categorized. So the question is then, in, 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 as we come to the end, what do we do? 
What do we do? I'm, I'm not here to tell you to throw out your prayer books, but I do want to wonder with you for just a few minutes what a better, better metaphor might be. I don't have an answer, but I want to give one model, and that is the, the Kabbalistic model. Not because I'm a mystic, but just because they also borrowed this language of kingship. So the Kabbalists um, w traded in, in lots of kind of uh, um, lots of big concepts, but one of their biggest was the Svirot, the ten emanations of God, or the ten forces through which God manifested in the world. And um, you can see a picture of the of the these ten forces as they as the Kabbalists would arrange them in what they called like the tree, the tree of life. Right? And in this tree, um, you can see the force of intelligence, of wisdom, of love, of fear, of beauty. In other words, God manifests in the world through beauty. God manifests in the world through wisdom. We experience um, glory in the, in, in the world, and we, and we associate with that with God. These are all manifestations of God. And then if you look at the very bottom, the last manifestation, the one that is closest to our existence, the Kabbalists called malchut, or kingship. In other words, why is, why is that the absolute lowest of the, of the ten forces? Because the Kabbalists said, this is, this, is, this is, now this is back to Maimonides, this is the most primary, basic encounter with God that we can have. We first experience God as a kind of a ruling force, a power. We don't know exactly how to describe it, we just call it a king because God is, seems to be the power that, is, that rules over all. But that's not the final understanding of God. Right? If we left God as a king, then we would only have one-tenth and the lowest tenth of an understanding of God. So they gave, us a, a, they gave us more language. They gave us nine other forces. And the fact that there are ten, I think, is just an arbitrary way of saying there are, there are many ways of understanding God. We understand God uh, through love. We understand God through beauty. We understand God through um, triumph. We understand God um, through wisdom. There are many ways that we understand God, and the, the, the dominion of God is important, but it's just, just our first formulation. We want to go higher in our understandings of God. We want, to, we, want to, we want to get to an understanding of God, which as you climb this, this, uh, this spherotic ladder, we're eventually getting towards the God that hovers above it all, and you'll see at the top, the one that actually isn't expressed in any particular force, the, the Kabbalists called the Ein Sof, the one without end. In other words, the infinite. And that, that too is a kind of a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that says that no metaphor will work. That ultimately, the true God is infinite. The true God is beyond any of our conceptions. The true God is beyond any of our words or our images. So I don't know if you would prefer to think of God as love, or you would prefer to think of God as beauty, or you prefer to think of God as a parent, or a lover, or a shepherd, or any of the metaphors that we've thrown around. I don't think there is one good answer, but I think the last comment um, was an important one, that we actually, the, the, the real problem is not which metaphor you choose, but getting stuck in any one metaphor. The metaphor of the king is so powerful and offers so much and has had political resonance and has created an attitudinal relationship to God and has, above all, ascribed to God greatness and power. But if God is only a king, if the metaphor becomes the thing, then we've lost the thread then we're no longer using language to get us somewhere. The language becomes the God itself. And that, I think, is a prohibition. That is getting close enough to the, to the sculpture or the image or the, or the, the, the concretization of God. So that, that I think, um, we, are, we are trying to avoid, even as we move through some of these familiar metaphors uh, on Rosh Hashanah, we should keep in mind there are many, many others there are some even in the prayer book itself. And that should keep, whether the king metaphor works for you or not, keep in mind that we, we should always be searching for new ways of understanding God, new ways of describing God. And I'll just end by reading um, one of my favorite uh, thoughts on this um, by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel. 
he puts our, uh, the contemporary dilemma that I started with, this sort of clash between um, the believers, the literal believers and the literal non-believers in such, um, such beautiful language here. He says, whatever we may say of the good, of mercy, justice, might, beauty of life and the beauty of life, and all these things can be metaphors for God. Whatever we say about this or of religious faith or of the divine, what the soul in its authenticity aspires for is above all of these. All the divine names, whether in Hebrew or any other language, give us only a tiny and dull spark of the hidden light to which the soul aspires when he utters the word God. Every definition of God brings about heresy. Every definition is spiritual idolatry. Even attributing to him intellect and will, even the term divine, even the term God suffers from the limitations of definition, except for the keen awareness that all these things are but sparkling flashes of what cannot be defined, these too would engender heresy. In other words, I, I think I'm ending a little bit where, where I started, which is to say that language is helpful. We need language, we're people, and language is meant to get us somewhere, but we have to always remember that it's all just a metaphor that nothing, no language that we can use to describe God is actually going to just get at that great and infinite mystery. And if I had to pick a, a metaphor to end with, maybe that's the one I'd pick, is the mystery. And that's really, uh, that's really the, the, great, um, the greatness of the Jewish message, is that we believe in God and we don't know what God is. That's a part of our faith, is to say you cannot know God you cannot describe God, and yet we will, because we want to be in relationship with God. So thanks so much for having me here, everybody. <laughs>